You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have a very special guest, uh, the mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gilliam. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I appreciate it very much. It's good to be back home in South Dade. Okay, great. Uh, let's dive right in uh, and let's get into uh, the short version of your story in terms of being raised in South Florida and how did you get into politics? Yeah, I um, born down here, uh, grew up in an area called Richmond Heights, which is at the bottom bottom. Uh, my mother uh, growing up uh, was a school bus driver for the Miami Dade school system. Uh, my father was a construction worker and uh, when there was no construction work to be done, my daddy uh, would be found on the street corner selling fruits or vegetables uh, out of the back of the truck. On Saturday mornings, he set up across the street from the cemetery selling flowers to bereaved families. My mom and dad, in my opinion, are uh, the best examples of hard work that I have. Um, I'm one of seven kids, all boys and one girl, my baby sister. Um, I'm the first of the seven to graduate from high school, the first of the seven to graduate from college and to have my little brother and little sister come behind me and do the same thing. Um, our family knows very well what it means to see intergenerational poverty interrupted at the hands of a good public education. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a strong advocate for, for public education now. Um, I went to Florida A&M University, FAMU, um, and while there was student body president. And that's probably where I got my biggest introduction to politics was in student government. Um, we were constantly marching, constantly fighting, constantly pushing back against something. I went to college right at the same time as Republicans took over control of the state of Florida under Jeb Bush. And uh, it just felt like we were perpetually pushing back on some bad policy or another. And uh, fortunately, um, you know, uh, we find ourselves here today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor. Um, it's an honor. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. But after 20 years of Democrats losing, um, it's time for us to win again. Uh, and I think um, um, we're well positioned uh, in my opinion, to compete and to win this November election. Okay, so uh, when I first uh, met you, uh, I asked a brother here in uh, Miami, uh, politically active brother, uh, conscious brother, uh, and I asked him, you know, what do you think about the mayor uh, in terms of taking it? And his response was, uh, that's going to be very hard to do where your opponent, Philip Levin, uh, has very deep pockets, uh, and the the point of view was it was very risky for some black folks in Miami to 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 rally behind you because they felt the odds were were so much in uh, his favor and they didn't want to be blacklisted. What do you got to say about that kind of group of uh, folks in Miami? Yeah, I so I know that 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 constituency uh, exists. I would I would ask them to frankly vote their conscience. Um, I think we have a real opportunity to flip this state this time. Um, um, with all due respect to Philip Levine and to money, money doesn't win elections. People do. Votes win elections. Um, I feel confident in my ability to compete. Um, if money won elections, to use an example that will be close to people down here, um, Jeff Green, who is now one of my opponents in the Democratic uh, primary race, ran against um, then um, uh, uh, Congressman Kendrick Meek for the U.S. Senate nomination. Uh, Jeff Green spent $24 million to Kendrick's seven, and Kendrick beat him by double digits, 60 to 30 percent. Um, people vote. People matter. Um, uh, resources are nice to have, and I would love to have them. But I honestly feel like we've got a winning recipe here. Um, and if I could just convince, frankly, more people of color to believe in their own power. You know, Carter G. Woodson wrote in the book, The Miseducation of the Negro, uh, that if you control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. You don't have to tell him to go here or to stand there. He will go there naturally because his education makes it necessary. Um, I would ask people to not only be physically liberated, but that they be mentally liberated, that they understand the political power that they have, um, that they walk in that power and recognize that um, when they demonstrate that level of courage, 
um, just as our ancestors have done many, many times before, that we can actually win on the other side. Um, I think that's what it's going to take in order to win this election. I think everyday people already possess it. They're some of our strongest supporters. Um, we need people of means and people with influence to, frankly, get out of their own way and allow their um, allow the, the in, inner courage of what our historic struggles have been to be their guide and to vote their conscience. And what do you got to say about uh, the sentiment, uh, at least from, from this point of view, was black Miami did not know you. Uh, and it was going to be tough. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think getting parts of 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 the state to get to know me is a grueling exercise for me every day. Um, I've literally been in Miami now for three days. I leave tomorrow morning to drive to Orlando. Uh, I'll do a town hall meeting and a set of meetings there, and then we'll drive right back here to South Florida and I'll end the night in Miami. I'll wake up the next day and spend the day in Miami. I'll go home to my family for two days and then I will be back here uh, in South Florida. So I'm putting in my part of the work. Um, what is required, particularly when you are running a race where you're not the most resource candidate, is that you need other people to lean in with you. Right. If I uh, there's not a bone in my body that believes I can run this way, race by myself, the only way we'll win is by people being able to lean in and leverage their networks. Leverage the people that they know, the people who look to them for guidance and advice and for leadership and say, you know what? I've studied. I've learned a little bit more about this brother. And that's why I'm with him. That kind of leveraging um, is frankly what's going to take us the distance. We've not done a red dime or rather a green <laughs> dollar um, in television advertising in this race. Phil Levine has spent now over $11 million in doing so. And even still, a majority of Democrats um, who are expected to vote in this primary are undecided. That means they've seen it and are still not convinced that that's the choice. And so if that's the case, we know that we've got something to offer to those voters. And when they start to hear from us in paid media, when we do begin paid media, as we get closer to uh, this primary election, I'm confident that when they know me, when they get to see me, when they learn that I am a choice on the ballot, I trust my chances at being able to win those voters over anybody else running. Um, but it's a grueling exercise, requires a lot of work, but it also requires a lot of support from people saying, you know what, I'm with them. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm going to recruit as many people as I can to be with me. OK, so uh, Obama, uh, you know, I believe he got a lot of things right, uh, you know, facing tremendous uh, opposition. But from your view, what did he get wrong? Uh, in terms of leadership? Is there anything that kind of you were disappointed about or you feel like the Democratic Party as a whole, we need to improve on this? Yeah. Looking I mean, over at his eight years. Sure. I mean, I, I agree with your first uh, comment, Marlon, that um, the president did some pretty tremendous things. Um, he had historic health care reform that had been attempted by presidents for many generations. Um, um, Barack Obama was able to achieve not perfect, uh, deserving of its own, you know, level headed critique and what we can do better there. Um, but nonetheless, it was revolutionary change in the sense that it was something that eluded uh, seven or eight presidents prior to him. Um, um, where I think we could have done better is one, and this is something I got to make sure that I'm communicating clearly about, even as I run this race to be the next governor of Florida, we got to be careful that we, uh, let the people who are with us know that we can't do this thing by ourselves. Once we get there, I mean, once we got president Obama to Washington, DC, it was like, Hey, good brother, go forth and do great things. And we let our hands off the plow. And what happened was, is that he ran into opposition that was so determined to see him fail that there wasn't the same sheer force on the other side saying that we've got this man's back, um, not just to support he and Michelle as the individuals, but to rise and say this agenda is important and we want to push it further. So I think where we failed is that we kind of left him, you know, in many ways off on his own and he allowed us to leave him on his own. But what did... So, so there's nothing that stands out that, hey, Obama missed this. We get the opposition was there. We get uh, uh, a lot of racism. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was kind of cornered by a lot of racism. Yeah. Uh, 
But what did he get wrong? Well, I tell you, I mean, I think if if there were more, um, um, if if we in our best case, if he wasn't facing the kind of outright opposition that he faced, I would love to have seen him do comprehensive immigration reform in his first term as president. Um, I think our country deserved it. I think we've got 20 million people who are right now in legal limbo. Um, because Congress and D.C. has failed to act on comprehensive, comprehensive immigration reform. I think the president should have been a lot more assertive in his appointment of judges. Um, um, now, he did face opposition there, but I do believe um, what Republicans have always understood about politics in this country is that if you control the courts, you control it all. Um, in the case of the courts, you're not talking about four years or eight years of a presidency. You're talking about 40 years of uh, judicial edict. Um, you're talking about uh, workers' rights. You're talking about a woman's right to choose. You're talking about net neutrality. You're talking about all these fundamental pieces that may ultimately end up in the courts. And if you've got a judiciary that is aligned philosophically with conservatives, um, it doesn't matter what the sentiment of the country is. You've got a court that is hell bent on doing what it wants to do. And there's nobody there to stop them in doing so. If you're interested in advertising on the Go podcast, uh, you can go to moguldom.com forward slash G-H-O-G-H. Uh, once you're there, you can click on the advertise uh, button. Let's go. How would you rank uh, the point of view uh, in terms of what did Obama miss uh, that uh, with the rise of uh, Facebook in Amazon and Google, uh, the wealth concentration out of uh, big tech and Silicon Valley, um, you know, his administration was very close to the executives at Facebook, Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, uh, the chairman of Google. There was, many believe there was too close of a relationship. The Obama administration was too close to the wealthy liberals, uh, mainly out of Silicon Valley, and that compromised the regulatory view in terms of our regulators, our politicians looking out ahead of time to better understand where is this technology and concentration going? Like, you know, how is it going to impact uh, the country? But I feel like the country, particularly the Obama administration, was asleep. And part of that was the coziness of Silicon Valley helped me get elected. They're my friends. They're my buddies. Uh, Cory Booker, uh, of course, is very close with a lot of the elites in Silicon Valley. But would it be fair to say that the Democratic Party has been asleep on the inequality uh, and wealth concentration out of Silicon Valley? Well, I tell you, I mean, if I were going to critique the wealth inequality, I mean, Silicon Valley would be a part of it. But I would I would I would say that New York is leading the pack. I mean, the fact that uh, nobody went to jail after the largest financial collapse uh, in this nation's history. Um, uh, nobody on Wall Street, uh, not a single person paid the penalty. In fact, the American people went uh, to them to bail them out of the crisis that they themselves created to me is abhorrent. Um, and, and that falls at the responsibility, yes, of the president, but also of Democrats and Republicans who, in my opinion, um, were far too cozy with 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 Wall Street that they allowed the same people who ran this country's economy and the, frankly, the global economy into the ground to get away with it. And not a single person paid a penalty for it. Now, there's a lot that needs to be regulated in Wall Street. And I have to tell you, I trust your judgment over over what some of that ought to look like better than I trust uh, uh, my own there. Um, um, but much of the inequality that has been built largely at the hands of big banks and big uh, loopholes in the regulatory environment around huge sums of wealth being shifted in this country um, has happened largely because we've allowed these folks to run roughshod over the U.S. and now global economy because um, we've been asleep at the wheel. So that's a that's a fair point in terms of there's a lot of inequality um, and exploitation coming out of Wall Street. But a lot of folks, including myself, uh, believe that when Obama and Democrats ran, they banged against Wall Street. Hey, you guys caused the financial collapse. You guys are looking to exploit home buyers. You guys are creating all these freaky products that exploit people. So. You know, Obama came into power where, hey, Wall Street has really got us in a mess. And this stuff has been unchecked. Yeah. But 
Then they bailed them out. But yeah, but some folks believe that hey, Wall Street uh, leans, of course, uh, on the Republican side, but the greed and the exploitation was just shifted to the liberal side, and so there was no kind of handcuffing on Facebook and Google and Amazon. These companies are absorbing more and more power and lobbying influence uh, and a stepping over our privacy rights in terms of uh, the greed running up in the face of pr- uh, basic yes. privacy rights, yeah. uh, that things were just shifted, meaning yeah. that we have a problem of greed in this society. No matter what political flavor you frame it, that the Democrats, mainly the Obama administration, just shifted yeah. kind of cover for that greed from Wall Street, which is a problem, over to Silicon Valley. Got it. Well, I first of all, I think they're culprits on both coasts. Uh, I don't, I, I, nobody gets off the hook. Um, um, we don't have to look any further than the congressional hearings to see that our lawmakers are completely inept at regulating uh, um, 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 uh, Silicon Valley. Um, you, you had a, a distinguished, long-serving member of the United States Senate saying to Mark Zuckerberg, how do you offer this for free? And now any lay person would be smart enough to acknowledge it's not free. They're selling advertising. And God knows they're also selling data. They're selling a lot of stuff. But you've got the head regulators asking what are asinine questions uh, in, in, the, in the face of such a powerful hegemon of technology. And so the fact is, is that we've got a Congress that is disconnected from a very, very powerful tool, which, again, um, if not properly constrained and not properly regulated and audited, are selling off important pieces of private personal information and are not being held to account. And so on that, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that um, we got a problem here. And I don't know that it's a partisan problem. I know that it to be a problem that you got folks there who simply are not informed and are serving in the highest offices of this land are ultimately responsible for creating the regulatory environment who, uh, again, don't know how Facebook works. If the federal regulators, some many people believe that federal regulators uh are compromised by lobbyists, pressure, friendships. If you were to become governor of Florida, what what would you think about in terms of protecting privacy rights at the state level, checking the the you know the powerful elites out of Silicon Valley uh, who haven't been checked? What yeah. could you do at the state level? Yeah, I've, I again am am not as well versed in all of the instruments that the state has as it relates to privacy protection. It largely falls in a federal domain, um, um, uh, interstate commerce, um, meaning across borders, and so we would have to instruct our legal. Um, department to to better understand what regulatory environment we have um, when it comes to intrastate uh, uh, and interstate commerce. Um, but I will tell you, I'm a big advocate uh, advocate for privacy rights. I'm a member of the ACLU, a member of People for the American Way Foundation, um, and those groups who have, in my opinion, been the most pronounced voices out there advocating on behalf of the everyday citizen. Um, particularly when it comes to our privacy rights. I do think net neutrality um, um, was uh, uh, um, extremely unfortunate development at the federal level, the Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission, the FCC. Uh, And frankly, they're being bought up by very, very powerful interests. Um, um, But this is largely terrain. This is largely space that is still new territory in the regulatory environment. Um, we need people who, who are as smart or smarter than the folks on Silicon Valley and in Wall Street in this case, who were in position to create the kind of regulatory environment that keeps the everyday citizen protected. That's not what we have right now. Um, in fact, you got folks, regulators who are moving into these sectors and then back out from these sectors and then influencing on the political process as lobbyists. And so you got the, the, the Fox Garden Hen House uh, in many cases and a very cozy relationship between all uh, both sides that I think are preventing the kind of regulatory environment that, again, puts the interest of everyday people before those of corporate profits. Got it. Uh, Amazon HQ2. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you 
view Amazon having these cities bid with welfare packages. Uh, Amazon's market cap is approaching a trillion dollars, 800 billion. But why are cities like Miami and Atlanta, why are these cities offering welfare to Amazon? Yeah, Amazon doesn't need any welfare. What Amazon needs is a commitment that if you bring your jobs into my state, we will be able to produce the talent of workforce to walk into any job that you create. Um, um, that's the kind of conversation we need to be having is, can we produce the workforce to take care, to, to fall into the jobs that you'll bring to our communities? But this, this idea that uh, Amazon or, you know, Google, you know, does this as well. And a couple of other, you know, big, big, big tech and even beyond that big hegemon companies um, uh, that the only way they're going to choose to locate in a place is how good the financial package is, is ludicrous. Uh, these folks don't need that. What, what they need is a commitment that if you locate to these places that we can produce the workforce and that your workforce will get access to a good quality of life. But for us to take money out of the public purse to make way for these companies that are making money hand over fist uh, as a way to in some way induce them, the best inducement we could create is to say, if you locate your jobs here, not only will we have the workforce, but we will also invest into the kinds of quality of life investments that make it so that your employee, when you bring them here or you recruit them from here, they're not going to be looking for the next job out of here. Why? Because housing is unaffordable, because we don't have 21st century transportation options, that we got public schools that are raggedy and can't ensure that if your kids attend a public education, uh, uh, a system here in the state that they're going to have to be uh, pulled out of there and put into a private school. That's how we should be packaging our assets to companies like an Amazon is to say, look, we've got you covered when it comes to a good quality lived experience if you choose to locate in our communities. But to give away the, the, the public purse, in my opinion, is, is short-sighted. And frankly, I don't think that's what's going to ultimately win. Do you believe... Uh the majority of Democratic voters are educated on the the big tech lobbyist spin that they create jobs. Where obviously, if a you know Amazon comes in, uh, they may hire a hundred thousand people. Uh, uh, the pitch for HQ two is, is managers, one hundred k plus. Uh, but when people say that big tech creates jobs, uh, it seems that no one factors in what the robots take away. No one factors in that when these big tech companies get more efficient, they suppress wages. The robots replace jobs. And then when most of Amazon's jobs are, act, are actually in factory sorting centers, they're low wage under, at least uh, what I've read is, is not uh, 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 great conditions at a, at a lot of these places. So, you know, do you believe the voter is educated in terms of these big tech companies net net they're not really creating jobs when you when you factor in the the automation and robots that they take away they crush other businesses right and they get more efficient yeah i mean no by and large i think people are not as i mean we know that the quote-unquote robots are coming or the robots are here you know you hear the um um the the automation revolution um, that is already underway. Um, and, and, and I think we've got to, as a society, learn to deal with in the public policy space, at least what we're going to do about that. Um, if we're moving more toward a contract based economy where you got people who are not working full time for anybody, but their labor is being used on a contracted uh, basis, if you will. Um, what happens to um, uh, the fact that most of us derive our health care benefits from our employer. Most of us derive our retirement benefits from our employer. Most community benefits that are negotiated on behalf of the worker are negotiated by the company with another company. And so this has a huge impact on the way in which um, our society operates. I mean, are we ready in the public space to really deal with not just automation, but what 
the contract economy has uh, uh, is going to introduce the kind of disruption it's going to introduce um, on the public square, um, health care, retirement benefits. Um, uh, and other benefits that are negotiated by virtue of who you work for. If now everybody is going to be working for themselves in some contractual uh, role or at a contractual basis. And you can see how we can easily move in that direction because most big companies don't want the overhead of what it means to have a full time FTE. Uh, they don't want what it means to have to take care of an employee fully loaded. Uh, if they can figure out a way to, to have uh, uh, the work get done and not have to have a fully loaded uh, salary line, they do it. Um, and so we now have to have a, a public policy conversation of what that means to the rest of us. Uh, but to your question, no, I don't think most people equate um, what that means. I think what we look at is what's right in front of us, which is, are you telling me we're about to have 100,000 jobs and this about to pay on average $100,000? Heck yeah, sign me up. I want that. Uh, without any conversation about what gets lost in that process, who loses out on that kind of a deal. And I think that in an evaluation when determining recruitment of these companies, an analysis has to be done on that basis. You add this, but then what do we lose? What are the other community impacts uh, to, this, to, 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 to this decision? Um, and I think that has to be taken into context for sure. Many of us uh, believe uh, that the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, the old guard, uh, the ones that are more connected to lobbyists, uh, the corporate side of the party has taken the, the black vote for granted, meaning that they exploit the extremity of the racism that's coming out coming from the Republican Party where there's no other option for you, Negro. There's no other option for you to vote. So we know you're going to vote for us every election. And so many of us believe that the black vote uh, has been, I believe, the most reliable vote in the Democratic Party in terms of its potency, in terms of turning elections that we have not received commensurate value for our support. And so if you agree that the black voter has been taken for granted, how does that change? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it, it has absolutely been taken for granted. Um, um, uh, we don't advertise uh, to people of color until it's the last couple of weeks. I got it in my bag already. Is that the thinking? Uh, well, I think they think they got no place else to go, right? Um, the mistake you make when you say they've got no place else to go is they do have another place to go. And that's home. That's not turning out. That's not voting. Right. We saw six million fewer people in 2016 compared to 2012. And so the idea that you've got no place to go, well, voting at home and not voting at all um, by staying home is also a decision. And that means you didn't become the Democrats, didn't become the benefactor of that non-voter. Right. And so. Um, I think the way it changes is by us seriously showing up to the table and demanding what it is that we want to see and letting folks know that, listen, 2016 was not accidental. You had six million people uh, voting. You had major urban centers, uh, not just Miami Broward, but 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 Philadelphia and Detroit um, um, and other urbanized, major urbanized areas, um, 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 uh, uh, Milwaukee where we just didn't see the turnout of, of, of our voters. And unfortunately, the crisis, you know, the, the red the, the red flag went up real late. Um, even in, down here, I was with some media folks earlier today who they said they just had a, a windfall of resources coming in doing advertising the last week. It was like, I don't know, was some manna from heaven for them happened. But what an embarrassment that instead of having a sustained relationship with black media, black press, making sure that you're advertising in those spaces and holding a relationship there, that you wait till the last minute to where at crisis mode and you see that we're not getting the numbers out, we need. Hey, I'm just going to bring out Beyonce and Jay-Z. Or, or, and then that's, and by the way, it was a great concert, but it didn't translate into votes. One of the largest websites, uh, popular culture websites in the United States, uh, bossup.com. Uh, HRC did not put any budget. I, I think the calculus, and people have told me this, the calculus is I already got the black vote. I don't got to spend with black media. Yeah, well, that's a big mistake. <laughs> I think, what did they do? The, the, the DNC spent maybe $200 million from the DNC last election cycle. They just announced a, a record-breaking investment in the black vote. Drum roll. One and a half million dollars is what they are proposing to spend in the black. I mean, 
it, it's just shameful. Uh, it's embarrassing that that's still where we are. But but the truth is, is that not only do we we have to show up, but we also got to demand more. What about our candidates? What about when, when candidates of color put themselves up and you tell us, oh, it's not the time or you don't represent the right demographic or uh, will they elect a person of color? Well, we don't know because you haven't given us one. You've not given us one. Even in my own race, I am the first uh, 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 I would be the first African-American or person of color on the Democratic side to lead the Democratic Party. Yet in this state, the Democrats, uh, the black vote and the Democratic par- primary might represent about 30 percent of the electorate. Right. Yet we've never had. I mean, it's, it, it is stunning. And, and they will they will put up insurmountable barriers if they could uh, to keep a candidate like me from being able to get out there and to really, truly compete. Um, and it's all because that they are addicted to a playbook. They got a typograph of what our nominee is supposed to look like, sound like, where they're supposed to come from, what the pedigree of their family is supposed to be. And I will admit happily that I don't fit that profile. But that profile has been losing in the state of Florida for 20 years, five consecutive elections for governor. We've lost. Right. And so maybe my play doesn't work, but I can tell you theirs absolutely doesn't work. So why aren't we trying it differently? Preach. Are you affiliated with the Justice Democrats, that organization? I'm familiar with Justice Democrats, and we've written for endorsement, <laughs> and we would love to be considered. But I love the, the progressive uh, uh, viewpoints that you're expressing. That's uh, what I believe. If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. In May, over 60 Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces uh, with endorsement of Netanyahu. Uh, Many Democrats did not speak up, the corporate side of the party. Many of them did not have a a point of view. Bernie Sanders came out. uh, A couple of other uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus came out. But many Democrats did not speak up. Uh, And so what would you say uh, to that voter who says, hey, you Democrats, you guys can bang against Trump all day. But if there's a Trump in another country, a conservative right wing side, and they do something that the United Nations believes violates human rights, why? We know your values by your consistency, meaning that you're doing things just to optimize your vote, your, your lobbying support. But I want to see consistency. I, I want to see some conviction on that side where you're going to speak up for human rights, not just when it's popular to bang against Trump. But when 60 uh, Palestinians who are throwing rocks and, and, and protesting what I view as apartheid, uh, they don't deserve to be shot. Uh, you know, can you speak to the 60 Palestinians that were murdered and the lack of uh, democratic condemnation of that human rights uh, violation? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, um, none of us uh, can look at those images and be OK with it. Right. I think. Um, Um, And I do think that the time is always right, as Dr. King says, to do what's right. Um, The right thing to do is to hold our leaders accountable um, to force um, through thoughtful and very deliberate negotiation um, um, uh, the two state solution um, to ensure that Palestinians uh, have the right to self-determination, that they have the right to. Um, electing their own uh, leadership, um, that just as we have in the United States, uh, sovereignty and the ability to desire for ourselves, that it should also be true um, for Palestinians. Uh, and unfortunately, today it is not. Um, um, and at the hands of uh, this administration, we now have even incited more violence by recognizing um, uh, Jerusalem to be the capital and also to locate the United States embassy there. Again, just adding uh, more fuel to the fire. Um, I think it was a provocation by the president that was unnecessary um, and has been costly uh, from a human toll. Um, um, and I've been to Israel, you know, three different times. Um, um, and the Palestinian Authority sat down with Palestinian young people 
And honestly, what has what I am most concerned about, and there's a lot to be concerned about, but we now have a whole nother generation of Palestinians and Israelis who are growing up in an atmosphere of hate. Um, and that tells me that then the cycle can't be disrupted. If the next generation who is supposed to be our hope, who is supposed to be, uh, you know, our best expectation for a better and a brighter future on both sides are now growing up uh, again in, in the spirit of hate. Um, it really does make me um, it makes me doubtful around our ability to seek a peaceful and a humanitarian solution. Would you condemn the murder of 60 Palestinians? I condemn the murder on all sides. I don't, I don't, I don't, the, the truth is, is, no, is how, when you say all sides, uh, there's no, at least with, with the, with the protest, they're protesting. I understand the, the protest. What, what I mean, what I mean by all sides, and I don't mean to equate obviously the death of, of, of 60 Palestinians, um, in a humanitarian crisis. Um, but I think we have to take in total the environment that has happened in, uh, uh between the Palestinian authority, uh, and what's happened in Palestine and what's also happened in Israel. Now, while I was there, we had cartouche missiles that were coming across the border into the part of 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 the country where we were visiting, which was Haifa. Um, um, that's dangerous. Right. Uh, 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 now, that's not the Palestinian government, but they are militants who are um, not under c the control of the elected government. Your point of view is you do condemn Israeli military killing the protesters, but you also condemn, of course, Palestinians firing, you know, firing stuff missiles into Israel. Yeah, that could yeah. also take lives, right? And, 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 and the reason why that's important is because you have a government that is now able to justify its actions because now their citizens are also in harm way. Imagine if, if in Canada, now I don't think this would happen, but if in Canada they began to fire missiles over the border into the United States, whether they're going into barren lands or are less populated lands, believe that the United States will respond. Um, in this case, this is not a direct comparable, but I only I, I say that to say that each country has a right to self uh, protection, right? That you don't, nobody wants to put their people in harm's way. And the reason why we've got to, see the level of violence in these two areas in this region of the of the of the world reduced um, uh, is quite frankly because Israel right now has more firepower and their pushback um, um, is outsized to the threat that they're attempting to 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 squelch but they're able to continue that 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 mission out of a destination that, they believe they should be able to protect their citizens. And I don't think any of us would disagree that they shouldn't be able to protect their citizens. At the same token, as the United Nations has said, there's something called reciprocal response. And then there is outsized response. And what we've seen is, is in my opinion, an outsized response that has created a humanitarian crisis. Yeah, uh, I'll just leave on, on that note is uh, it's disappointing for the corporate side, the corporate machine side of the Democratic Party to be to the right of the United Nations uh, of that issue. Uh, I want to move on to uh, Parkland. Uh, so you've been out in these streets. Uh, you're marching with the students, the younger generation. You've been very vocal and present. Um, you know, what, what do you say to the point of view that, uh, well, what's a higher priority? Is it optimizing the, the information systems, the technology, the databases, making sure that the systems are working properly and creating new systems or banning specific guns? If you had to pick one in terms of what should be a higher priority for the state of Florida? Well, I hate the framing because I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't prioritize above the two. But it but I'll tell you, because I think we've got to deal with I think we have to deal with background checks on these individuals. I also think we have to deal with the proliferation of weapons, the proliferation of guns and the type of guns that are being proliferated. So, for instance, in Parkland's case, it might be that we would regulate 
um, high-capacity magazines and weapons of war that can fire off 60 bullets in less than 60 seconds to prevent the kind of mass carnage that you can get from that. But if you live in Liberty City or in Tallahassee and your community is being ravaged and torn apart by everyday gun violence that are not the weapons of war, but are certainly weapons of war in our city streets, um, uh, banning assault weapons doesn't speak to that. We have to deal with the proliferation of guns, period. But, um, but and, specifically on banning specific types of yeah. weapons, you wouldn't give one uh, a higher priority? Let's oh, say yeah. You, I mean, I, I think any high-capacity uh, magazine no, would be I, in, in terms of uh, infor- optimizing information systems, databases, yeah. Uh, connecting all this stuff right. where the, uh, the, the authorities have better information, the I, state has better information. I, I think better information is good. I think bad people determined to do bad things are going to do bad things. And if we allow for them to have access to the kinds of weapons where they can maximize their devastation, they're going to go for it, right? And so I think we've got to deal with the kind of machinery, artillery that we have available to citizens um, because I think it lies at the intersection of their ability. For instance, if 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 you couldn't get off more than 10 rounds uh, uh, as the highest capacity weapon that we had, then imagine the number of lives that might have been saved in Orlando at Pulse or at Parkland or the attempted, you know, attack at the Fort Lauderdale Airport um, or certainly Las Vegas. Yeah, right? but, but of course, some people would say that, hey, there were so many red flags. Uh, you could create you could optimize uh, the existing systems, make them work where this person could have uh, been caught beforehand. Pot- potentially. Right. I mean, we knew that this was a bad player and I think there was some failure of information there. But say, for instance, that with big data, we started mining everybody's social media to the point that every word that they uttered on social media that we thought might be a trigger then allowed them to be put into a higher level of surveillance database. We, we get in this cycle where how much information and how much data should the government have on an individual? Um, I do believe in information gathering. I do believe that that with good information, we can make uh, you know good decisions. But I also say that had uh, this uh, individual been identified um, uh, but still gets access to weapons of war, that we would be dealing with a real crisis still on our hands. The, the machinery matters. The information matters. I don't think they are... Um, mutually exclusive. I think we have to have it both. I think we need good information, but I also think we need to address the proliferation and the accessibility of these weapons, who gets to access them and what type of weapons they get access to. What would you say to the Florida voter who says, and I heard this before the marijuana uh, laws were changed uh, and decriminalized and then of course made legal in, in some states that they said initially that we changed the marijuana laws and it was going to help cancer patients. It was going to help sick people only. We're not trying to legalize it everywhere. And so that was the push. And voters kind of voted uh, 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 to, to kind of make a, a minor step. And then the floodgates kind of open, right? And so what would you say uh, to that gun rights voter who says, if you start taking, like, hey, I'm for some of, some of the stuff that you guys are saying are, is logical. However, I know the way this stuff works is that just like the marijuana laws, you said it was just for cancer patients. You said it was just for sick people. But you guys had an agenda to, to, to push this across the country where it's going to be legal. What would you say to that voter who says, hey, if you start banning one type of weapon, another type of weapon, that that's not going to satisfy the agenda and the political machine. Uh, and you guys are going to start going after more and more weapons. So it's not really about, I disagree that you shouldn't have automatic weapons, but I know that if you guys go there, you guys are going to go like five more steps. Yeah. Um, so I know you used it as a, as a, a setup for the question, but I am an endorser of full uh, marijuana use. Um, and, uh, uh, um, I believe in this case, uh, I'm also obviously for the second amendment. Um, but I believe that every one of our rights has guardrails on it. Our speech has guardrails on it, right? Uh, you can't go into a crowded theater and yell fire. 
um, the Supreme Court has held that uh, to be the case. And so, yeah, I believe that there ought to be commonsensical guardrails and society is dynamic and, um, and and our laws have to be dynamic in that way. Um, now, the Second Amendment is a strongly held right and principle. Um, I think there's some difference of interpretations around a well, you know, a militia versus, um, you know, arming citizens to have weaponry consistent with that of a uh, of a U.S. military. I don't think any of us um, believe that literally anymore. But I do believe in the Second Amendment that pe- people have a right to bear arms. What I don't agree with, and, and I think it's an extension, too far an extension or reach, that our framers intended for people to have weapons of mass destruction, weapons of war, um, as an everyday right uh, in, our, in a civilized society. Uh, on military bases, they have to check their weapons. They have to completely decommission these things. And these people are in war zones just to get into their bunkers. Yeah, here we're like guns everywhere. I mean, it, it just doesn't make it doesn't make sense. So I, I think there are commonsensical solutions that we can reach on, on on all sides of this thing. And then I think there are the people who are going to be extreme and say, I'm not giving up anything because if I give up anything, I give up everything. Um, um, I, I don't believe that. I think that's an easy cop out uh, for for someone. But I don't believe that to be evidenced. It hadn't been evidenced so far in this country, not even after um, those Dozens of babies' bodies were carried out of Sandy Hook School. Um, um, I I just knew that that would be enough when we saw those caskets um, of of kids, of babies, not being able to live out the fullness of their lives, all because we believe that people ought to have any weapon they want. I think that doesn't make sense. And so I'm unapologetic in my position um, around guns. I think we've got an epidemic we've got to deal with, a crisis, and I think we can do it without disrespecting the Second Amendment. How do you plan to promote economic development uh, in South Florida specifically, uh, you know, within communities that feel left out yeah. uh, in terms of contracting? Yeah. Uh, you know, what type of uh, programs are you yeah. um, proposing that would give a boost, uh, an economic boost in communities that feel yeah. uh, left out? Well, I'll tell you, in communities of color and communities that are particularly underrepresented in this economy, uh, that are working multiple jobs just to make ends meet. Um, I think we've got to return to, 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 to the days where we would equip our young people with a skill, uh, a trade that they could use, they could monetize, go to work and get a good job. I'm dealing with everyday basic kind of stuff, which is that we are producing our kids off of our high school campuses without a meaningful skill that they could apply. They could monetize that skill and get a job that pays a good wage. Uh, Open your own roofing company. Open your own janitorial service. Open your own uh, woodwork and shop making uh, 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 through working with your hands. We've made blue collar work in some way you know, unattractive because it's it's a shame to have to do that work. So I want to start there because I think they often get left out of the conversation on jobs, on economics uh, and on development. But obviously, we've got to de- deal with lending practices. We have a state infrastructure fund, rather a state um, um, a stimulus fund that co- uh, consists of over one hundred million dollars that doesn't have any kind of lens on it as it relates to equity, gender, race, income or otherwise, I would uh, uh, put a lens on those funds so that uh, communities who have created that revenue for the state also get the benefit from the buying and the spending power of that. Um, those commitments matter. We had a governor who ended affirmative action in higher education and in state contracting by executive order. I would return it uh, through executive order. It matters that the buying and spending power of this state reflect diversity of the people in this state who create those uh, bastions of revenue and, and, and funds. Where are you on film tax credits? I'm, I'm in favor of, of that. And frankly, I would much prefer TV. Um, usually pilots stay in a place for a number of years once you get them there. And right now we're missing out um, on 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 major industry and major jobs, contract work that pays good wages. Um, they're down in, in, in Atlanta uh, manufacturing what it means to be on Miami Beach when you can have the real thing. Um, I think that's problematic. Jumping back to uh, Parkland. Yeah. What's your response to... That black voter who says, for the gun laws to really change in this country, meaning that our community uh, has been 
we've faced a lot of destruction, a lot of death. Right. This has been going on promiscuously for decades. But no, no one seems to care. The politicians don't seem to, to kind of be able to uh, push an agenda that impacts our communities as it relates to gun violence. What would you say to that black voter who says, for the gun laws to really change in the United States, the race of a lot of the victims would need to change because when white, when there's white victims, uh, that the country has a greater outrage, uh, that white victims are uh, of greater value uh, than black victims in Chicago or Compton, uh, Watts, uh, that if, if white kids and white teenagers and white adults, if they start to die, uh, at a greater rate from gun violence, then the laws could move. Well, I'll tell you, in the case of Sandy Hook, that didn't hold true. There was no national reform after Sandy Hook. There was a lot of talk about it. President of the United States got on television and cried about it. And nothing changed as a result of. I do think, obviously, the media pays more attention, uh, depending upon um, um, uh, who the victims are. Um, what I have to appreciate about the Sandy Hook, uh, I'm sorry, about the Parkland students is that they joined forces. They took they took uh, the victims of mass shootings and combined voices with the victims of everyday gun violence. Folks from Chicago, from Philly, from D.C. And they said, join our platform. Let's do this thing together. That's what we need. I think that's where the transformational moment will take place is when you bring these demographics that are unlikely allies to the same table and raise the voice, the specter of the pervasive nature of gun violence that's impacting not just unsuspecting students sitting in an affluent high school, but the kid who is the unsuspecting kid who's just trying to walk to school, who has to deal with the pervasive presence of gun violence that shows up in their communities every day of the week. That all of us deserve a protection, that all of our lives matter in that case. And unfortunately, that has not been what has happened with real popular movements around gun violence and gun reform. It is beginning to happen in this case. And I have to tell you, I salute um, those students from Philly, from Chicago, from D.C., from Parkland. Um, from parts of Liberty City that are joining voices and saying, look, all of us have had enough. All of us. Uh, I want to thank the mayor for thank coming you. on uh, Go. Uh, where can people find more information yeah, check uh, us about out. you? Check us out, andrewgillum.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms, except Snatch, Snapchat for some reason. I got to figure out why my team don't have us on Snapchat, but whatever. Uh, but Facebook, uh, Instagram, um, Twitter, of course, our website at andrewgillum.com. So be sure to check out Andrew Gilliam. I believe he's going to be the next governor of the state that. of Florida. I received that. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at mogulldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.